The information expressed in the following podcast is intended for educational purposes only and was created by and belongs solely to Believe Limited and the Flow podcast and does not necessarily reflect the views of our sponsors. Please speak to your healthcare provider before making any medical decisions. Hi, I'm Jessica Richmond, and it is time to talk about extreme periods. Welcome to Flow. It's December, month 12, episode 12, and we still want to know, how's your flow? Welcome once again to Flow. Christy, how's it flowing? So I am patiently impatiently awaiting her arrival at any moment now you know a little bit tired a little bit bloated all the fun things that come in the day or two before her arrival it's like it's expanding is your body like expanding like getting ready to do something expanding my midsection which i don't know (laughs) i don't know about you jay rich but even my leggings are like come on It's amazing to be in a woman's body because, like, every day it's so different. I know. Certain and clothes fit differently every day. I I wonder if men appreciate that about us. Are they better? I know. <laughs> <laughs> so spicy. I've noticed that I am, like, pre-pre-menstrual. Like, I'm not yet PMSing. It's the best time for me to do things like cold showers in the morning. Mm. Like, my body's ready to, like, try, like, I'll do a push-up right now. You know what I mean? At yeah. this juncture. Because next week I'll be like, I don't want to do anything I want to cuddle in a blanket I yeah that's kind of how I've been the last couple of days I'm also just want to say that it's been an honor this is my last episode with this incredible freaking team I'm sad and I'm gonna miss all of you and I can't thank you all enough for having me here with you during this process Amy and Patrick and you for asking me to be part of this just been an honor and I've learned so much back at you. I've learned so much. You are a leader in education and what you stand for is what all us menstruators need to stand for. Love the idea of following you into battle if you ever you need anyone standing by. Thanks, Jay Rich. Thank you all. Thank you, Believe Limited. Christy, we're going to keep talking. 2021 has been amazing. And what more of an appropriate time as we close out season one than to discuss the closing out of reproductive years otherwise known as menopause. And we learned some really cool things in a conversation with Dr. Hirsch, including, spoiler alert, like how long is menopause? The timeline, the answer to that was fascinating to me. Fascinating. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I hope you all enjoyed in the interview, which we will get to right after this quick break. Now a word from Takeda, a proud sponsor of the Flow Podcast Initiative. Takeda is the manufacturer of Von Vendi, Von Willebrand Factor Recombinant. Together, we're committed to connecting you to the resources that can support you throughout your journey and to help get the word out to women everywhere. You have a voice, you have a community, and you have our unwavering support. To learn more, visit vonvendi.com flow. That's V-O-N-V-E-N-D-I dot com slash flow. So excited to be here on Flow. Dr. Hirsch. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your practice and your focus in medicine? Hi, I'm Heather Hirsch, and I am a board-certified internist. A lot of people think I'm a gynecologist. I'm an internist, and I work at the Brigham and Women's Hospital uh, here where I live in Boston, Massachusetts, 
and I am the clinical program director of the Menopause and Midlife Clinic. So I see women for all sorts of hormonal things, be it perimenopause, PMDD, which is severe PMS, menopause, um, sexual disorders. Uh, I hear all kinds of different things from women. And uh, that is my focus in my practice. I do consultative medicine, basically around hormones. We are so excited to have you here. So yeah, menopause has been on our list as a topic to discuss for quite a while now. So yeah, let's just dive right into it. Can we start out with just like a timeline of the process or is there a timeline? Yes. I think that's a great question. Like just the basics, right? So many of us are confused about the basics. This is a little off topic, but I was speaking to someone in the UK yesterday and the UK has done a really good job around menopause awareness. They're sort of two steps ahead of where the US is. And she said to me, what do you learn as Americans in in school about menopause? And I was like, in medical school? She's like, no, like in high school when you have like health education. And I was like, (laughs) oh, no, no, no. The word is not, the word is not broached. No one knows what menopause is. And she's like, oh, does that mean that they just think that grandma just always has periods or grandma just, I I don't understand. Like, what do they teach you? And I was like, I don't, I don't know what other people think. And no one knows what anyone else thinks. That's, that's what they teach us. So even something like the basic definitions is important to cover. Let's just start out with what does the menopause transition look like? Well, there's this whole fancy thing called the straw stages, which I'm not going to get into, but there really is a uh, scientific and classification of these different stages, but it's really going to start in perimenopause. And perimenopause is sort of the mysterious cousin of menopause. If menopause isn't confusing enough, there's perimenopause. The average age of the United States is 47. I think it's actually probably younger because it's underreported or misreported. But perimenopause is a time leading up to a woman's last period. And it can be a few years up to 10 years. And really, how would you know you're in perimenopause? It could be very subtle. There's no lab test that tells you you're in perimenopause. Like there's a a blood pressure cuff that tells you you have hypertension. The things that most women will notice is change in periods, any change in periods, be it um, time between periods, uh, length of their periods, what they look like. I mean, they tell me everything. Um, And then they might have some accompanying symptoms, whether it's vaginal dryness or changes in mood or changes in sleep or even hot flashes. It is actually quite common to have what is seemingly menopausal symptoms in perimenopause. And anyways, that all kind of leads up to the last period. So menopause is actually one day. It's one celebratory day when it's been 12 months of no period. And on and after that day, you are therefore postmenopausal. The perimenopause can be a long, long time and an interesting place to think about because I think a lot of symptoms come up during that time that kind of get deflected as you have anxiety, you have depression, you have fibromyalgia, you have um, chronic fatigue, and it might all be just perimenopause because those hormones are changing. And since we're on uh, the flow podcast, you know, the first thing that most women will notice is a change in periods if they get periods, because some women don't, right? They've had a hysterectomy or an IUD or an ablation or some other reason that they're on birth control, they don't get periods. That's so interesting. I'm curious if if you don't get your period, 
do you have perimenopausal symptoms still? Yes. So if you don't have your period, this can even make this more mysterious because then you don't have this sort of in inbred marker to know or to alert you that something's a little off. So let's use the case of having a hysterectomy where they take out your uterus, but they leave your ovaries. So they leave your ovaries, but they take out your uterus, you won't bleed because you don't have a uterus to bleed. But you're still making hormone and you're still making estrogen because both of your ovaries presumably are still doing their thing. But that level of estrogen starting to decline all the while, those years. And so you still have a lot of those symptoms. You can still have worse or not as severe symptoms really kind of can go either way, but you won't have that period as a marker of like, oh, this is changing. And maybe that's why those other things are changing. Now, one other slight difference is if you're on Let's say you're on a birth control pill, a continuous birth control pill, and so therefore you don't get periods. Sometimes we actually use that as treatment for perimenopause because you're giving some hormones back in a nice steady dose. And so sometimes women won't have symptoms or maybe they will have less symptoms if they're on a combined estrogen progesterone pill, but they're not getting a period. So even as I'm speaking it, you can sort of see how it can be confusing. And it really depends kind of on where you are starting from. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the symptoms and do they change over time? So you've mentioned a few of the symptoms, but so say I'm 42, right? So I'm coming into this time in my life. Do the symptoms stay consistent? Do they change over time? Is there any reason to it? Symptoms (laughs) can come and go. They tend to ebb and flow with what your hormone levels are doing. So I'm going to use an example of someone who's maybe closer to menopause and maybe her periods are like every three months. They're pretty spaced out. She might notice that if she gets two or three in a row, those symptoms might kind of abate a little bit. And that's because three periods in a row, there's kind of some more estrogen around and estrogen uh, for the most part will help control the majority of the symptoms, but not all and not everyone. But if I have to sort of make huge assumptions in early perimenopause, when the periods are uh, sometimes even more frequent, like, you know, you'll get like uh, one every three weeks, which is awful enough. Um, um, but sometimes then it's hard to sort of tell the forest through the trees because you can kind of have all these symptoms and there's just a seemingly never end of like flow and just hormones that are just really kind of going up and down and out of whack. Estrogen and progesterone mirror each other. So they're all just kind of going a little, they're all, they all have their own agenda. Importantly, one of the biggest symptoms that we know that starts very commonly in perimenopause is mood symptoms. So specifically new onset anxiety, it's really common in perimenopause. And there's two big things that are happening to women. There's this hormonal shift. And at the same time, as most women in the perimenopausal age range in their mid forties are really freaking busy and have a lot of life stressors. And so a lot of women will think, oh, I'm just stressing about work. I can't sleep because I'm stressing about my kids or I'm stressing about my parents or my partner. And this goes and goes for years because women don't ever stop to take care of themselves, me included, like just high up on that. But changes in mood symptoms can be one of the one of the first things that can happen. And, and one of the reasons we hypothesize this is actually progesterone will dip before estrogen does. And progesterone, if I have to give them like 
characteristics of a person, which they're not people, they're hormones, but is kind of this relaxing hormone in, in some ways. And so um, some people hypothesize it's the decline in progesterone that can cause like uh, new onset anxiety and trouble sleep. But women can also get sexual dysfunction, pain, and they think, oh, well, I can't have pain. I'm not in menopause. I'm still having periods. So can't be that. Or this anxiety can't be, it can't be that. I'm still having periods, I think. I mean, when was my last one? I don't know, right? So these symptoms can start um, in perimenopause and they can ebb and flow, which is a, a long-winded answer to your question. But I think that's the point, right? We're all different and we're all going to have a different experience as we exactly. go Exactly. Everyone's a little different. Lives. And important right. to think too is what is the environment like what are the other medications that she's taking what is her other medical history um, her obstetrical history that one's really important I might come back to that for a second and all of those together could make things totally different for one person versus the next I mean it's with so much variety and I know you want to come back to obstetric history but with so much variety is there a standard amount of time you mentioned the age 46 48 like how long? Are we talking on average? Are we talking? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think we know. I don't think experts really know. Probably if you ask me, I would say probably a few years, four years. But I would say, you know, I also see women who say to me, you know, I had my, my period stopped at 50, but I've had hot flashes since I was 39. And I will inevitably hear that. And so it's, it's so hard to get accurate numbers because no one's doing good research on this. And it's, it's not, that's a whole other story. You know, it has to do with, you know, funding and the idea that um, women's health exists beyond contraception and postpartum. And once we can really kind of understand that, I think we'll have a lot more research into this perimenopausal window. But as best as I can assume with the research that we have now and with what I see clinically, it's probably anywhere from three to four years on average. So I have questions um, about symptoms and, and when is it time to seek support? So I'm going to name a few things such as bone health, heart health, abnormal bleeding. You mentioned hot flashes. You mentioned sexual dysfunction. I, it's, I'm just so excited for this, you know, but what, what do we need to know about the things we don't hear about? The good news about this, I was just with a patient this morning and uh, she had an IUD in. And so she was about to replace it, but she said, gee, you know, uh, I'm in my late forties and I have been having some symptoms. Maybe we should check my hormone levels and, um, her hormone levels clearly showed likely menopause. I always say I don't bet on lab work because the female body, even though it's my job, I wouldn't bet on it, but lab work could be helpful. And she looked at me and she's like, I'm just so sad about this. They said, sad, like you have me now. We, we know what we're going to do. We're going to get you out, set up with a good plan. You're going to feel so empowered. And like, now, you know, and so while I think in, in a lot of these interviews, rattling off some of these facts sounds so daunting or so worrisome. Actually, there's so much good that can come out of these conversations in your podcast by women now being prepared because preparation is the key. It all goes back to the fact yes. that, you know, when the journalist asked me, what do they teach you about menopause? I was laughing, right? They barely teach us in medical school. Yeah. So this is such important work that we're doing and that you're doing. All right. So, you know, the changes that happen um, menopausally in terms of heart health and bone health and brain health and pelvic floor health all really have to do with the fact that estrogen plays a role in 
almost every organ system, if not every organ system in our body. And estrogen is such an important hormone. I don't want that to be a bridge to say that everyone needs hormone therapy or everyone should take hormone therapy because that's not necessarily true. But knowing that these changes can happen, whether you have symptoms or not, to the organs that you can't feel, your heart, your bones, your pelvic floor, you can feel that if you're having sex, but otherwise you probably don't walk around feeling your pelvic floor all day. Hopefully you don't. Those can all change because again, we're losing that estrogen as our ovaries kind of shut down shop. And it's important to know, for example, for bone health, that we lose the most bone density around and after menopause. And so that can be a big player in your bone density or propensity to have a fracture. Um, Estrogen is fairly cardioprotective. And in fact, the American Heart Association came out with a scientific statement in 2020 stating that they now feel as though menopause in and of itself is a novel risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And I think that's important. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to get cardiovascular disease, but the the American Heart Association is saying, ah, like this is important. This is an important time when there can be significant changes to heart health and, and bone health likewise. Now, when should you seek care? Really, I always say when these symptoms are bothering you more than they're not is one reason. When you are staying up late at night, Googling into the abyss, that's another reason. (laughs) When you are asking strangers on Facebook, what supplements to buy from Amazon, that is a good indication. Really, you know, my advice would be seek help sooner rather than later, because we all push these things off and they have a propensity to last much longer than we suspect. So before we know it, we're, we've been years feeling really crummy and gotten so used to it. Now, there's certainly a problem with your provider on the other side, not actually knowing the answer, but things like your podcast and um, many amazing resources and books and, and good YouTube videos um, and the North American Menopause Society or the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health are all good resources that if you start earlier, you can find solutions to your symptoms. Love that. And we will link those in our notes if people are interested in learning more. Um, Thank you for that. So I'm going to go to our next question, which was uh, a friend of mine and I, we both work in public health and we talk about menopause frequently. Um, And she had a question. So she's like, she said that she's seen a lot of vitamin supplements, which you just mentioned and hormone tests that are being marketed to women in their forties and fifties. And my friend, Amy and I are both curious, is this worth it? Is it a scam? What are your thoughts on these supplements and these tests? So let me answer this in a few parts. I think that there's a good and a bad to this situation. The first thing to know is that I believe the last estimate was that the femtech market is estimated to be somewhere around $600 billion. Yeah, exactly. I know. We're shaking right. our heads. Right. <laughs> which, which, which in and of itself is, is interesting in the fact that it means that women are now, women who are becoming perimenopausal, menopausal are tech savvy 
don't know how to podcast, know how to use TikTok, know how to do these things. And so we're using technology to find answers. It also means that that, that means that they can't readily find answers. So imagine a world in which you had high blood pressure, but you're doc- like something's so common, right? Let's say even more people go through perimenopause and menopause than people get hypertension. But imagine the 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 sheer incidence of hypertension and all those people just not knowing what to do. That's mm. literally what's happening with perimenopause and menopause. And so products are being made because they feel as though there is money to be made here. Is making money a bad thing? No, but making money is a bad thing if you have shitty and useless products. Some of them are shitty and useless for sure. Um, some of them are, you know, helpful, but massively up, up priced just because they know that women are desperate to feel better, vulnerable, and vulnerable, yeah. and yeah. can't get answers yeah. anywhere else. The same time as, you know, we can come back to the vitamin supplements, but you're also seeing a surge of, you know, online consultations for perimenopause and menopause or libido or sexual health and this and that. And again, is it good or is it bad? At some some place, there's this gray zone where, it, you know, it's a little bit of the wild, wild west. Vitamins and supplements are uh, something that I'm a proponent of uh, because uh, they can they can help and they can help support your symptoms. Now, if you have really severe symptoms, vitamins and supplements are not going to cut it. Just in my blunt opinion, just because they don't have the kind of efficacy as perhaps medications do. But people try all sorts of things. People probably spend thousands of dollars before they get to see a doctor who may prescribe a medication. That in in, um, in and of itself is a problem. It means that there's stigma around medications for menopause or there's still fears about hormone therapy. Or uh, again, they don't feel uh, as though their clinicians are even going to be helpful. So there's multiple reasons. It, it's a societal issue. And it's also, uh, I think actually the blame needs to come back to the medical professions, not the women themselves who are buying the vitamins. They're doing everything in their power right. to feel better. They're saying women are smart. Women are inquisitive. Women will like, I'm not going to buy till I find the solution. And if it means scrolling on Reddit yeah. and Facebook and buying this and this and this, I will do it. It's not their fault, but- Probably is a lot of it crap. Yes. Good to know. So what would you (laughs) recommend? So what would you recommend? You know, maybe talking to your doctor about what supplements might be beneficial for your circumstance. Is that what you would recommend? Yeah. Well, you know, actually, heck, while we're here, you know, I have a short list of supplements that I think can be really helpful. And it's a short list. You know, and really, I think the important supplements are particularly vitamin D supplementation, 1,000 to 2,000 units, and vitamin D has been shown to help reduce um, incidence of cancers, um, chronic disease, boost immunity, and boost mood, importantly. So you can't go wrong with vitamin D. I also am a big proponent of magnesium, magnesium 250 to 500 milligrams at bedtime. It can kind of help with relaxation and Uh, relief, dental relief from constipation. I had a patient the other day say, Dr. Hirsch, is magnesium the cure for everything? (laughs) I said, I know you hear about it so much these days. No, it's not the cure for everything, but it's a a good supplement that can help with bloating, um, constipation, or, you know, just help relax before bed, which is a symptom a lot of women have. Um, CoQ10 is a great supplement if you take a statin medication for cholesterol. 
Um, that's probably my, my gosh, that's probably my short list. Calcium is best from food. And then there's a bunch of other herbals. A lot of women are very interested in cinnamon, turmeric. Um, I find those are all fine. I'm probably not the expert at those. You'd probably want to interview a functional medicine doc or maybe you already have. Um, but in terms of supplements, those are really good. And then it, for symptoms like hot flashes, black cohosh or equel or estrovin, those are all nice over-the-counter options. But Really, in summary, I always say, look, if you notice these products work for, you know, eight weeks, 10 weeks, and then they kind of stop working, it's probably that it had perhaps a small effect or a placebo effect. And now, you know, don't suffer much longer than that. One last question about symptoms and how to manage, because sexual dysfunction is also a problem that I feel is a taboo topic, right? That, that we're not talking enough about. So what do you recommend for sexual dysfunction and menopause? Yeah. So great question. You know, for perimenopausal women or women with heavy periods who've been put on birth control pills, combined estrogen progesterone pills, those birth control pills can lower your free testosterone. It is very common that birth control pills will lower libido, which is desire, the drive for sexual, sexual thoughts and sexual activity. So one thing to think about for listeners to the show is that birth control pills can reduce libido. And so when I think about sexual health, I think about libido problems, arousal and orgasm. But even before I think of those three, the first thing I think about, I guess I just said it was libido. Even before libido is, is there any pain? If there's any pain, no matter what happens after that, you're never going to feel as though that sexual health is in a good place because you're always going to feel as though it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. And those are going to send signals to your brain Heather, don't do that. That hurts. So if there is pain, I usually treat that um, according to the etiology or the source of the pain. If it's vaginal dryness, which is leading to pain that can easily be treated with vaginal estrogen products is first line, extraordinarily safe, very efficacious. Um, there are lubricants and moisturizers, but those are really band-aids. I would absolutely advocate for vaginal estrogen. If there is a pain related to genital urinary syndrome of menopause, pain can come in all different, different etiologies. It could be from endometriosis or vulvodynia or other things as well. And those need to be treated before we get into, is it libido? Is it arousal or is it orgasm? So libido is just thinking about sex. And that's something that we kind of lose over time, particularly for a lot of women in midlife. If you know, you're anything like me and you're trying to raise kids and work full time and then have a side job and then also do a podcast and you're taking care of your parents and you're trying to clean up after your partner and all of these things, it gets totally lost, right? In fact, research shows that women in their 40s have the lowest libido and care the least about it. But in their 50s, actually women notice lower libido that becomes more problem problematic to them or bothersome to them, probably because now all of a sudden, maybe hopefully one kid's gone or all the kids are gone. And so, you know, life comes back to, to be to be able to be lived for you again, which is the fun part about menopause. Um, so if there's arousal or orgasm disorders, those are important to distinguish. And sometimes topical treatments like topical estrogens or topical progesterones to the genitals can be helpful because those atrophy, i.e. change, you know, throughout the perimenopause and menopause transition. And I do want to make one last point is that while we sometimes say the word menopause or perimenopause, I really, really 
see clinically anything that can happen postmenopausal that's you know traditionally a postmenopausal symptom i can see during perimenopause i can see women have such severe dryness or pain but still be having periods usually less frequently and they really get just dis- completely dismissed by their doctors as well that can't be a menopausal symptom you're not in menopause and that is hogwash (laughs) that can absolutely be from the changes in hormones. And so I think to back it up, you know, the first thing is, is there pain? If so, that has to be treated. And then is it a libido problem? Is it a desire and thinking about sex problem? Or is it an arousal and an orgasm problem? Those are both important too, because if you're not getting pleasure and, or there's pain and, or you're not interested, of course, you're not going to want to to do that. But in life, we have, you know, relationships and partnerships that we want to be fulfilling. And so it's important to take stock in our sexual health as well and not, not, you know, put that so on the back burner. So I agree with you 1000% sexual health is so important. So glad that you talked about some of the stigma and shame around shifts in sexual health. You also spoke about that with the vulnerability that women encounter when looking for a solution. Curious, what is the social impact you see in patients, you know, the, the stigma around youth-obsessed culture and even broaching the conversation around this close of reproductive years or anything else that you see in conversations with patients around just dealing with the stigma of it? Well, if you ever want to really revitalize the, like, the, the feminism part of, like, how women really should be running the world and, and, and how strong women are, oh, just come spend a day with me because almost inevitably, you know, all my patients will say to me at some point, they'll have this aha moment of, you know, I can't believe no one ever told me this. I can't believe I'm suffering alone. I can't believe me and my friends don't talk about it. This is all my friends and I talk about nowadays. Uh, all my friends are getting divorced. Please save my marriage. Why won't the government pay for medications for sexual health? You name it. The stigma and the shame and the cultural expectations for women to age gracefully but be beautiful mm-hmm is so deeply ingrained without being able to win on either side. And there's so many different roadblocks along the way for women. But what I think is wonderful about my job and why I literally have the best job on the planet is that nothing else in my career besides for helping women through this transition has had women come back to me and say, I truly feel like myself again. Like I feel like myself, I can do the things that I was doing before. I'm doing my artwork. (laughs) My fingers don't hurt so I can be an endodontist. Um, You know, uh, my, my kids are so happy. I'm not swearing at them all the time. And I'm so happy that I'm not yelling at them and, you know, saving away for their future therapy. They, They just have so many different experiences and so many different ways in which perimenopause and menopause affects their lives so significantly that they all have this aha moment. And then after that, they all hopefully, you know, the majority find some way to feel better and then have this fuel to them of like, we need to change this narrative. And it's great. I think that hopefully we'll get to where the UK is, or hopefully if y'all have daughters like me, our daughters won't have the same sort of experience. And perhaps even for our mothers, we're having a different experience because they probably weren't podcasting in the eighties. So, you know, I think that we're making strides. And I think that while there is a ton 
of stigma and shame. And it's sort of embedded so that it's invisible. Just like the whole fact that menopause isn't even really treated and talked about in medical school or residencies, that's just an invisibility of women. It's getting better and it's going to get better every single day, or at least that's what I have to tell myself. Well, thank you for being the change. Jay Ridge, I know you have to say. <laughs> I just want to, I do want to follow you. I do want to get, come follow you for several days. That'd be great. Cool. Oh, you, it, it's, it's so empowering. It's so exciting. Ugh, the conversations we have it, are just there to live for. They're so fun. And it's what brings me so much content or what brings me so much passion to like love doing this. And, and, you know, you guys, if you're listening and you can't see me, but everyone always meets me and they're like, oh, I, I wasn't expecting you, <laughs> you know, especially when they see me when I'm pregnant, right? They're like walking in thinking like, oh, I hate, you know, menopause and I'm getting older. And then here's this pregnant girl who's seemingly going to know what to do, right? It is really about women, uh, supporting women, women understanding what happens to their whole reproductive cycle. So if it's like a rainbow, there's, you know, puberty and contraception and getting pregnant. And then it stops, but it doesn't stop, right? It's perimenopause and menopause at the other end. And if we don't, if we don't, we don't teach women the whole side of the rainbow, how are we ever supposed to get unstuck basically? And, you know, um, women are delaying childbearing a lot more as well. And probably something you may have talked about on the show. And I also see a lot of women who um, delay childbearing have infertility treatments and then also have these sort of very severe perimenopausal and menopausal symptoms. And and I don't know what that is, but it's something that's certainly sort of new because of the delayed in childbearing, as I said, I was going to come back to. So I promised myself I would throw that back in here. But, you know, there's so so many different varieties and flavors and kinds of perimenopause and menopause. Um, And it all can start with just a change in your period. I do also, sorry, want to mention your callback to obstetric history, just because it might even be an answer to a question we have about what patients can do now to prepare. So, so important. I always say when I'm teaching, you know, what happens in pregnancy doesn't stay in pregnancy. And a lot of people think, uh, and by people, I mean, a lot of, you know, young doctors or clinicians sort of separate obstetrical history from like everything else as if it's like the siloed thing of like you as this pregnant person, but then, you know, the rest of your medical history is over here. And we know things like postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety can increase the risk for uh, worsening mood symptoms in perimenopause and into menopause. There's also some research to show that um, conditions like preeclampsia, preterm delivery, um, gestational hypertension, gestational diabetes can also put you at higher risk for cardiovascular implications in menopause, which we talked about probably 20 minutes ago in how uh, hormone shifts can change cardiovascular outcomes. And so it's really important to know your obstetrical history, not as a siloed thing of like, oh, well that happened. Yeah, yeah, I had gestational diabetes, but you know, it's fine. Those are really important diagnoses that a really good doctor who, you know, potentially your family doctor, your internist should carry over as you go through perimenopause and menopause, because all of those shifts, whether it's changes in insulin resistance, weight, we haven't even breached that topic and we probably don't have time to, um, but all of those things that happened in your obstetrics, um, play a role in perimenopause and postmenopausally. Okay. I'm- I know. <laughs> I am going to, just because this is also my last episode with Flo, I just, I want to ask the weight question. What is the weight? What, what do you have to say about weight? 
So there, weight gain seems to be pretty common in around the menopause transition and probably one of the most highly rated unwanted things, you know, for women to experience um, in their, uh, in their middle life, you know, so it's not uncommon. I'm seeing a patient and she's saying, well, I'm having terrible hot flashes and painful sex and I'm having all this brain fog, and, you know, I'll say, okay, what's, what of what of all the symptoms is the most important thing? If I had a magic wand and I could fix one thing for you, what would it be? This get rid of this belly fat, get rid of this belly fat. So we know that weight does change and metabolism changes, I should say, which can then change um, the weight, the number that you see on the scale. Or, you know, sometimes people talk about this menopause belly, which really just means to adipose tissue is probably shifting a little bit. Sometimes people actually don't even weigh more on the scale, but they their clothes just feel different. And so, you know, certainly menopause plays a big role and probably has a lot to do with so many different competing factors, changes in sleep, changes in mood, or is it directly related to estrogen's role in the way we metabolize sugars, which I think it's probably both. And so metabolism changes are such an important um, and, and big priority for women. And I don't think women even mean this in like a vain type of way. Sometimes we are, and we just say, hey, I just want to fit into my size six clothes. Sometimes we say, hey, I just want to fit in my clothes because I don't want to buy more clothes. Sometimes we say, that's where I feel sexy and I'm losing my libido because I, I don't feel sexy anymore. Some women will say, I know that weight gain is going to increase my risk for other diseases. So weight is a really important topic. And that is something that can also change in perimenopause and menopause. So that can be a real sore spot. That can be really frustrating for women because they will say, Dr. Hirsch, I'm eating the same. I'm exercising more. I'm counting calories. I'm doing everything. And I say, I know some of it is just, just downright genetics. And this, this, this world will have us believe that if we just get up early and meditate and, you know, take 10,000 steps and eat half of a plate full of vegetables that we're going to lose weight. And sometimes those things are not true. They're not realistic. Um, it doesn't mean that there's not things that we can't help you with. I want to help you to achieve that goal. Let's do it, but let's take the blame off of you. Yes. Well, in general too, just fat shaming in general in our society is so horrible going back to those pressures on women and yeah, it's, it feels, it's just too much. We just need to, those societal shifts are so vital to change. Um, so on that note, any tools that you would recommend, we're going to ask you a few short questions and maybe just get a few short answers from you here in the end. Um, so tools around, you know, managing the emotional impact. Do you have any a few tools in your toolbox that you would like to share? A great tool in my toolbox is journaling and tracking in a way that's really quick and efficient for you. So I like the Balance app for this. It was created by Dr. Louise Newson in the UK. And I like the Balance app because you can kind of quickly track your moods. And that's helpful because if you see anything in a cyclic pattern, you know, you might start to realize like a lot of women do, ah, it's before my period or it's right after ovulation, the week before, or et cetera, you can kind of brace yourself or prepare. That might be the week where you need extra support, be it I need support for someone to help wash the children, or I need to sleep in a little bit more on the weekends, or maybe I need to work from home that week. (laughs) So journaling and tracking is a great thing to start with. And I really like the balance app for people who like to write it out. 
write it out. Balance app. Got it. We will put that in the link. And because there's so much mystery, this is sort of like a recap question, no pressure, but are there three main things you wish people knew about menopause that they don't know? Yes. I wish people knew that one, 75% of women have symptoms. Number two, that last five to seven years on average. And number three, that perimenopause can start in your 40s and can be the reason a lot of women are having symptoms and perimenopause lasts on average a few years as well. And I think just knowing those three simple facts, if anything, can at least start women saying, aha, what can I do to prepare? And the more they start to think about that and ask questions, the better they're going to be. Love it. Thank you. What, so what should we be talking to our doctors about when we start feeling these feelings and (laughs) having these symptoms? And are there any questions that you would recommend us asking and, and talking to our doctors about directly? Oh, that one is, that one is hard. And it's again, a reflection of the fact that I do think this is a weakness in the medical education system. So a lot of women feel very dismissed and discouraged when they talk to their doctor. What I would suggest is continuing, you know, journal and track and and journal and track periods. If you have them, mood symptoms, hot flashes, um, or whatever else it may be that's on your agenda or on your symptom list and continue to bring it up with your doctor. And if you do think it's hormonal perimenopausal, like push a little bit. Um, and that might make them feel a little bit uncomfortable, but if, if you are more knowledgeable than your doctor in some way, you're going to encourage him or her to go back to their CME people and say, I think a lot of women are asking me about this and I don't know what this is. So I need some CME education on perimenopause or menopause. I have a course, not to plug it, but I have a course that I'm doing that's actually teaching women to learn what they need, to actually learn what medications they might need to treat their symptoms and how to talk to their doctor about it. And a lot of times the patients or my students will know what they need way before their doctor and then kind of ease them into actually what they need. If not my resources, there's lots of great resources out there. I have, of course, a YouTube and a, and um, lots of social media. And I have a podcast a little bit on hiatus right now because I was working on my course. I have a course, you know, um, Menopause Taylor's on YouTube. She does a lot of really great resources in education. Dr. Louise Newson is... Um, a doctor in the UK who does the balance app. And um, there's lots of good resources and education on social media nowadays. And so really it's okay if you feel like you know more than your doctor on this and you probably do. And then it's kind of like the art of trying to see how you can talk to them. The other things that people can also do is try and find a doctor on NAMS and Ishwich, which I know you said you'll link in the description below so that they can see if there's a, a certified doctor who's had special training in this that they can find close to them. If, if starting with their doctor doesn't work. But most people would prefer to just start with their own doctor. <laughs> people don't want like 18 doctors. So it's very frustrating, but those are kind of the resources that um, you have available. And I do think that there are more than ever, and that's fantastic. And I just also say, make sure the person you're following is following evidence-based yes. medical <laughs> guidance. <laughs> so we want to make sure all the people that I have mentioned are absolutely clear to my book. Oh, thank you, Heather. This is 
Oh my goodness. Like, (laughs) I feel like this is an episode that I'm probably going to revisit multiple times over the next (laughs) few years. Just, there's so much information that you've, you've provided us and thank you. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. This is truly my life's mission. And I think I knew that a few years ago. And it's kind of cool to feel like you have your life's mission, like at the ripe age of, you know, your late 30s. But I really know that this is the biggest gap in care for women's health is post 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 pregnancy into the perimenopausal phase. Um, and I love doing this. I love teaching on this. I hope you do come back to it because there's so much information in there. And I always say, you know, I did extra training at the Cleveland Clinic and in menopause. And it took me years to learn all of this stuff that I can very easily rattle off. So this is not simplistic stuff, which is why I think it's great that we started with the basics, right? You know, you're like, what are the phases? And, and that's the basics. If if you get the basics from this, this episode, I think that's a great takeaway. And the great thing about podcasts is they live mm-hmm. in infancy. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Jess, did I forget any questions? Did you no, have any? No, I just capped yeah. in Dr. Hirsch. I want to follow the lead. Where are you yes. going? <laughs> that was incredible. What a major intellectual download you gave us. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. I thank you guys so much for the work that you're doing. I think more and more women are listening to podcasts and even uh, the demographic, which was always kind of poo which is the women 45 to 55 of not listening to podcasts. I think it's absolute baloney. And I think, you know, the future of women listening to shows like this are now in their twenties and thirties. And man, if they know that is just so much better for them, because this is the other side of the rainbow that any of your listeners absolutely should know about. So I thank you guys for thinking of me and having me on. Ah, Dr. Hirsch is great. Great. Thanking her for her time with us. I guess menopause is kind of this final frontier of research needed. Like it's so unknown, under-researched. It's on par for everything related to people with a uterus. Yeah. We don't know, right? It was a really educational conversation. And as I mentioned to her, I'm probably going to revisit this quite a few times over the next few years as I enter this phase of my life. Mm-hmm. And it's a phase where there's a lot of different ways to approach it because outside of the medical research that's needed, there's the like, social impact, the right. emotional impact of going through a transition. Do you, oh, Christy, in episode 12, have some Christy's <laughs> tips for how to approach the transitional time? The first just came to me, and that is to talk about it, right? Like we've said this over and over again, but talk about it. Talk to your friends about it. Talk to your doctor about it. You feel less lonely and also just raises awareness. So yeah, talk about it. So how are you feeling? Like, what are you going through? What are the hot flashes? And it feels really cliche and saying hot flashes, but we know what I'm talking about. I think that will help as we always try to end the stigma around these topics, right? The other is following some of these pros, including Dr. Hirsch and Dr. Jen. I'm going to mention her book in just a minute, but following these pros on Instagram and TikTok because they do have so much information and it's such a great way to learn. Um, These doctors are offering us so, so much information. And my other tip is there is a new book out about menopause that is all the rage and I have it and I have not read it, but it's called the mana or menopause. I'm jumping here. 
Menopause Manifesto by Dr. Jen Gunter, and it is highly recommended. It's groundbreaking because there's not that much on this topic. So if you really want to learn more and learn how to advocate for yourself, grab that book. Fantastic. Oh, and talk about it. Talk about it. Talk about it. The oral tradition was the way of the Isle of Luna, that magical place where women would come together just to menstruate and talk about menstruation and nothing was ever written down. And that's why some of the old wisdoms are lost is the idea. It was just discussed, which means we just have to keep the conversation going. Yeah. I'm like, I like to read books, so I want things to be written down. (laughs) No, no, I mean, like, we should now do that. I know. Like, it's important now to do that. But, you know. That was my initial reaction, but I love it. Like, I love the point of, of that message. Talk about it. Yes. Talk about it. Talk about it. Because if you don't, and just take in, for example, what the mass media has to say about menopause, you might feel a little crazy. Mm. Come here, baby. What do you think you are? You are not crazy. Crazy or something? Crazy! I'm just going to highlight one of the multiple reports done in the past 20 years that exemplifies the fact that menopause is negatively portrayed in the media. In the Reader's Guide, in years 1981 through roughly 1994, significant data revealed that in spite of the increased attention, the information available on menopause through the popular media is minimal and insufficient. All representations as of 94 focused on menopause as a negative experience or a disease in need of medical treatment. There was considerable contradiction and inconsistency And no variety was taken into account for aging, stress, lifestyle factors, race, ethnicity, exercise, diet. Even when those are represented, they've been trivialized. So do not get your information on menopause from the TV. Not until some more content is created, more accurately portraying the experience. I have learned through the conversations that we've had with Dr. Holmes and Dr. Hirsch, it's like, let's get away from those stereotypes. Mm. right Mm -hmm. so because that's what we see on tv just as you're saying so let's let's think beyond hot flashes so deep to that (laughs) we've also though learned that people can have those sweats and progesterone dropping or Mm. raising i should check my facts i'm gonna go back and listen to our episodes but you know (laughs) you can have a little flash of heat even before menopause so there's a lot to learn there's a lot to talk about on that note christy we love you all we can't believe this is the end of season one. Thank you for being a part of our flow. Thank you so much. Stay tuned. Season two starts in January. Subscribe to review and share flow referrals from you are the best way to reach new people. Share your story with us. Do you have an experience of extreme cyclical bleeding? We believe sharing these stories will help support an increase in medical research and social acceptance. Bloodstream media is more than just a rare disease podcast network with shows on chronic pain, menstrual health and dungeons and dragons. Yes. Dungeons and dragons. Bloodstream media has got a little something for everyone. Visit bloodstreammedia.com or find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram to learn more. And thanks to our sponsor, Takeda, for their support of Flow. Flow is produced by Bloodstream Media and supported by Takeda. Shout out to Flow's creative director, Amy Board, and season one hosts, Jessica Richmond, that's me, and Christy Van Horn. Our next episode, season two, will begin January 13th. 
Hey, that's the day after I start menstruating.